0: You're listening to the Roanoke Valley Church Podcast. Today's sermon is the second lesson based off of Sky Jathani's book entitled, With, Reimagining Our Relationship with God. Today's sermon is based on a posture Sky describes as life over God. Life over God recognizes that God has created laws and principles that govern the world. This posture reduces faith to principles, divine laws, and applicable instructions without God needing to be involved. Life over God lives as if God's part is finished. He has given us the owner's manual for life, and now we are responsible for following the instructions. Listen in to learn more. Please visit our website, roanokevalleychurch.org, and on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash for More resources, sermons, and links to help you be a part of all that God is doing in the Roanoke Valley. And now, enjoy today's lesson.
1: All right, church. Great to be together. Good morning to you all. We are uh, in our second uh, second lesson of our new series called Reimagine, and this is in an emphasis of reimagining our relationship with God. So in a sense, possibly, perhaps, thinking about it differently than you have before. So some of this is challenging me. It comes from a book entitled With, which I, I recommend, but this is all building a little bit of a sneak peek here for you guys. This is all building Uh, to a series that we're going to do called The Good Shepherd, which prayerfully, these lessons are going to bring us to a place where we desire to really know who God is as the shepherd of our lives. We're doing this both here in Roanoke and down in the New River Valley starting at our alumni service. We'll kick it off. And it will be a a study on uh, famously Psalm 23, but it will launch into other passages that highlight God being the good shepherd Ezekiel and Jeremiah and a number of different things. But uh, as Ben Hutchins and I have talked more and more about that, that's something God and His Spirit have been putting on our hearts, that it really boils down to if you know who God is, a lot of the things just figure themselves out. And if you understand God as a shepherd and what that really means and the cultural beauty that that God's word includes for us, uh, that really does help us to walk uh, in this sense of God being who He is, so that we can partner with Him and trust Him all along the way. But I felt like we needed to, or at least myself, a lot of this is self-reflection that I get to share with you guys, is to first contemplate and think through, how do I relate to, to God now? Not just, let me get a new idea real quick, but how, how can I contemplate? How can I be maybe briefly introspective to think, how do I think of God? What's He like? Uh, How do I operate? What perhaps is my worldview on how I go through this life? And some of that can be shaped by the culture we live in. A lot of that can be shaped even by our church culture here. And if you've been around for a while, uh, there are things that we emphasize more so than others. There are things that we've championed uh, more so than others. And that can become the, the forefront of the lens in which we see the world. And while it may be good, it might not be complete. And it's always our goal, I believe, as followers of Jesus or people that want to follow God, now we want to we be known by God and we want to know him more and more and what he's up to. So last Sunday, if you weren't with us, we looked at one of the four postures uh, that we can create or we can have towards God in the sense of being under God. And most famously, you know, our, our pledge of allegiance under God, right? In the sense that, that God has given us his word, his law, and the better we actually emphasize it and put it into practice, the better our lives will go. And we know his promises that if you put this into practice, you will be like a house built on a rock that will not be shaken. So we understand that God's word and his principles are worth living after. But what can create and what rather what can creep into my heart and perhaps your heart as we looked at last Sunday is that it can become a sense of how do we deal with our fears, how do we deal with the worries of this life? And we can use God's word and the as a kind of a roadmap, the better I do it the better life should go for me. And it's a subtle way of putting our trust in our ability to put God's word into practice, and it also can be a sneaky way to control God, that if I do what you say, you should now do what you said. Not just his promises, but you should bless me. You should equip me for what I want. If I study the Bible with my kids, then out pops this Christian. You should do that, right? But if I don't say the Bible, well, of course, he's not gonna become a Christian. And it puts You follow me? It kind of puts an emphasis on your ability, and it squeezes God out. And it's a way of controlling God, that if I do what you say, then you should do what I want you to do. And I don't think any of us signed up or thought that that's the way we approached Christianity, like, hey, I'm in this so that God will get me what I want. Uh, that's not lordship, but over time, that can become how we approach God. I prayed, so why didn't it happen? I followed your word, why, didn't, why does my life look like this? I did it this way, and out popped this. That's not what I thought was going to happen. What's up with you, God? And it makes us question God. Um, and we also think in the world, those who are not putting God's word into practice, well, there's no reason why their life looks like garbage. And we think, well, because... I'm putting God's word into practice. My life is not garbage. Well, true to a degree, but you're no better than they. We're all dependent upon God, not on our ability to, to do it. Does that make sense? Maybe a little? Okay. Well, today, we're, uh, we're talking about the flip side of that, which is over God. And you think of life over God. And instantly you start to think of, well, someone that doesn't believe in God. Someone that in a sense, you know what? I don't believe God exists. And you'd be right to a degree about atheism, the sense that God doesn't exist, there is no God, life has natural law and order, and you put those things into practice, and this is life. So you would be true to that degree. But there's also something in our history called deism. Ever heard of that? All right, which is a little bit of a hybrid of not, it's not full-blown atheism, but it's also the sense of deism that there's natural law and there's laws that God has put into practice or put in, in place. And if I understand those laws and do them, then life is controllable, it's in order. But even deism squeezes out God completely. And it boils, it or minimizes it to a simple sense of, I I do what God has organized in the world. He organized gravity, so okay, I understand that and believe that, so that's how life kind of operates. But God is not in the picture. There's no relationship with God. There's a relationship with natural law. Does that make sense? So we are after a relationship with God. Every one of these lessons boils down to that fact, that we want to treasure God above everything else, that we want God to be our great reward and our treasure. He's the one we want to know and to be known by, and we want others to know that, not just passing along best practices or applications or knowing how the world works in a sense. We want to know God. So this posture uh, definitely came about well before um, you know, Isaac Newton was contemplating the nature of the universe in his garden one afternoon in the, in the ripe age of, oh, not his age, but the year 1666. Isaac Newton uh, wondered, as he saw an apple fall from a tree, why does an apple always fall towards the earth? And Newton's suspicion launched his great, his great quest to define the law of gravity. And eventually, his work launched multiple disciplines that inaugurated a revolution of scientific theory called, or a scientific moment, called the Enlightenment. Ever heard of that? Yes, OK, yeah, all right, all right, all right, all right. It's a little bit of history, so don't go to sleep yet. Uh, being the, but the Enlightenment, and you're like, oh, man, that was back in the, in the 17th century. What was that to me? The Enlightenment fundamentally changed the way you view the world, period, period. You, you weren't born then, I wasn't. So you, you're swimming in the Enlightenment theory. All right, and modernism and postmodernism it's there. The way you view the cosmos and how you relate to the universe is directly shaped by enlightenment thought. So none of us are free from what I'm about to share. So we're all in this together. We're all swimming in a bowl of enlightenment soup, okay? So deep in all of us, and this goes way back before Isaac Newton, deep in all of us, this goes back to the human condition that we see in the Garden of Eden, is that we all desire to control our environment, Period. Right? None of us, unless you're a toddler, uh, likes chaos. Like you're you're trying to control your environment and as the older you get, we're trying to mitigate our fears. When we're younger, we might be afraid of the dark or the boogeyman or some things like that. Sorry if you're still afraid of him, it doesn't exist. Pop that bubble. So anyway, there's a sense of the older I get, my fears take root in different things. Where I used to be afraid of the bully down the street, well now I'm afraid of my children having a bully. And it just changes, it shifts. I believe Hazel highlighted that beautifully in her communion. But Where life under God, as we talked about last week, can attempt to control God and mitigate fears through religiosity and morality and obedience and faith, life over God can view the, can view the universe very much in this enlightenment theory that it's like a machine. And it's our job to understand how it operates and then leverage those principles to control it, all right? History lesson's almost over, okay? So mathematics and scientific method, all the kids, your l- stuff that they're learning in elementary school, it's good, but it, it can then be the way that we discover the natural laws that rule everything. So there's a natural law that rules everything and the implications of that understanding of the universe works out in practice that now God, who very much was the dependent figure in previous generations, is now replaced by science. All right? So we look at the, you know, the ancient religions and polytheism, and even the monotheistic religions of the past, and if someone got sick, they'd run to prayer. They'd run to rituals, and they'd run to all different things. And we, you know, we look at that and say, okay, you know, it wasn't the smoke that healed that person, it was God, but it was very much central that God's got to do this. Well, the Enlightenment brought in their science that actually deals with your fear you get sick, run to the pharmacy. You don't need God, run to the pharmacy. Now, what I'm not proposing is that we all huddle around in a circle and say, okay, someone needs, you know, some medicine, well, let's just ask God to to heal them. Well, well, God does create science. God is in control of the cosmos. He blesses brilliant people like Bill Blaskus, who's a family physician, who knows these things, who can actually prescribe truths in the cosmos that help us heal and grow. But, as disciples we understand that we don't believe in science as the dictator, we believe in a God who created it. Does that make sense? So if you're out there like, no, actually more informed that's by science than God, that's enlightenment thinking. Squeezes out God being in control and it replaces it with law, science that God actually, we believe, created. And we see more and more of that as we get older. So I'm not shaken when the when the, uh, the universe by this new telescope is becoming bigger and bigger. Some people are like, this proves that God doesn't exist. Well, more and more people, and my thinking is, this, this proves that this is way bigger than just a happenstance. There's gotta be a creator in all of this. So while for us in this room, and typically in our culture and our country, right now, 75% of the United States is self-proclaimed Christian, all right? Don't roll your eyes but the sense that the popularity of God still being in control is still there, all right? There's a, there's a thought process. That's why I shared that statistic, that God isn't completely squeezed out for many, but what it can be is that he, the God, often creates rule or has rules, and there's an existence in the universe, but he's distant. But he's distant. He's relatively uninvolved in the matters of ordinary life. And I think most of American Christianity falls into that. That we believe there's a God, we're not gonna say that he doesn't exist, but he doesn't really care about the ins and outs of my life. He's there, he's there, he does this, he does that, I can't, under, I can't explain this, so God must have done it. But he's really not involved in my day-to-day life. It's the old watchmaker analogy, that he creates a watch, the universe runs automatically without requiring his involvement. I think a lot of people believe that's who God is. And they blame God for the chaos sometimes that we see in our world on that watchmaker theory. Like, is he going to do anything? But as people of faith, we subscribe to a belief that science and natural law point to God, that discoveries of the cosmos and this telescope and medical breakthroughs that Drew and Bill and all of our medical professionals and psychologists and Uh, they figure out for us and teach us that that actually equips us to depend and rely more on God, not less. It's meant to create a strengthening of our knowledge of Him, not a, a greater dependence upon others. But that's hard. Think about our world right now. Think about the things that are going on in our culture. Where the Ten Commandments can be displayed. What's the definition of marriage? Who should teach sex education in public schools? Should we say the Pledge of Allegiance under God? Should that exist? Should we pray in school? This stuff's been going on for a long, long time. Think about the issues in our culture. Think about where you side on those two, right? We may say, hey, you know what? What's the big deal about the Ten Commandments being being there in the, you know, downtown Roanoke in the government building? Isn't government based on the principles that exist in God's word? Isn't that the best form of government, we may say? Doesn't morality in God's word teach the appropriate things about sex education, right? Shouldn't we have God in schools because God is worthy to be in all things, right? But then the flip side of that says, well, no, 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 no. There's natural law and civil law that's not based on the morality of God's word, so keep them separate. So we shouldn't have the 10 commandments in any government building because we don't believe that God is, in, is the basis of civil authority. We don't believe that biblical morality guides how we should teach about sex, marriage, gender, and even what should or shouldn't be taught in schools. So you may be on the side like, hey, no, no, God's in the school, so morality should be taught. When I was in middle school, abstinence was what was taught, right? And then we believe that, again, sexual morality is any any sexual interaction outside of marriage, right? But we also see the statistics of a school that teaches abstinence and a school that doesn't teach abstinence have no difference in who's involved in sexual intercourse, none, very little. So what you teach doesn't, nece- or the principle in which you want to imply or apply doesn't necessarily change one's life. So what we're after here is you can hold to whatever principles and laws you want, but if there's no relationship with God as the founder and chief and focus, life doesn't differ, yeah. which I can explain in my whole life why I grew up in church and I did all the right things, but as soon as that wasn't there, boom, in my heart, I was already just like everyone else who wasn't living according to God, and it just came out more, more abundantly. And the same is true for many of us who grew up in church. So the goal isn't, let's just find the laws in which God wants us to live by. Let's find the principles that God wants us to follow to have great families and great marriage and a great church. But we must find God. When we seek to find, we don't seek to find certain answers so that our lives go well. Give me the top five things to do to have a successful marriage. Now, those are good things to seek and know if you want to know God most, or more importantly, that you're seeking God and you want to know who He is by those principles. What happens with, with life over God is that we substitute principles for God, we squeeze out our relationship with God and our quest to, do, to know and to have all the right effective principles. And this is something honestly has plagued my relationship with God over many, many years. I was trying to run the diesel truck with vegetable juice. It just doesn't work. And what I'm realizing about my life is that I had principles in which I lived by before I became a Christian, and I just substituted the principles that I lived by when I became a Christian to a whole different new type of principle. But what I've lost at points is that God didn't save me to give me a bunch of new principles to live by. He saved me so that I could live with him. And yes, when I live with God, there are principles and there's truths and lordship that actually highlights whether or not you really are living for God. But many a times, I've stood up here at this podium and issued practicals. This is what you should live by, do these things. And while they're good, they're never meant to be what we end up focusing on most. Practicals are good to help you understand who God is. And when you know who God is, then our lives look different. And we know, we're able to discern truth from lies. We're able to discern right from wrong. We were never meant to be. Here's a bunch of stuff to do. Here's all the principles. Now go get them. But unfortunately, a lot of teaching from up here and a lot of teaching from church and a lot of this type of approach can produce people that substitute principles for God or God for principles. Now we look at the world and say, "Hey, we know the people that listen to podcasts uh, all these different, all this not, podcasts aren't bad. I'm t- let me get my ideas here. These podcasts are kind of like self-help, that they get their information from Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz. And we understand, no, don't live according to those principles. You've got to live according to God's principles. And we know that to be true because we know he's the creator of all things. It's probably a good idea to follow his principles, right? So I share all that to shed some light. And that is the culture in which we swim in every day. And we've got to admit, and maybe my admission will help you, that I have to admit that this culture of enlightenment and principle chasing has impacted my understanding of how I walk with God. And I think it's impacted how you walk with God, too. And I believe this time, I, I pray, is a time where we look at how we manage our lives how we manage our lives, and how the church manages our posture at times. So I've got one point, and it's after this idea of how may we be operating or influenced by a life over God, that posture. My first point up here, Will, is, she's on it, man, is that very same thing I've shared already, God's principles over relationship with God. Turn over to John chapter five. If you're feeling like, oh, no, you're not alone, this has been going on since Eden, all right? John 5, here in verse 36, uh, this is Jesus on a, a, a again, kind of a, a moment here where he's testifying about who he is. And it comes off of the heels of Jesus actually healing a man at the pool who was, uh, who was an invalid for 38 years and he did it on the Sabbath, and the religious rulers, and they're like, whoa, the religious, the, the, those who followed the law, those Pharisees and uh, teachers of the law were like, whoa, 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 who is this guy? You forced him to carry his mat on the Sabbath. You don't understand God. And Jesus goes on here in verse 36. It says, uh, I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. What do we see here? We see Pharisees, people that know God's word, better than you and I will ever know God's word. I mean, these are the spiritual elitists. They are righteous. If they lived in your house, we would be convicted up one side of the face and down the other over and over and over again about their devotion, about their knowledge, their understanding of prophecy, what God's up to. They would be able to destroy any champion on biblical jeopardy ever. They would just be awesome. So these guys aren't, they are hypocrites in the sense they're not dealing with what's on the inside, but as far as their life, what they believe and know and what they do, they're living it. They're living it big time. And Jesus is able to say to them, you don't know me and the word doesn't dwell in you because you don't believe the one who he sent. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law and Old Testament and a lot of different things that have come from that reduce the reducing of faith to principles, divine laws, and applicable instructions. That's what happened, is that to know God, it, it's, it's just all, this is what you do, here are the principles you live by, you wash your hands before you do this, you do this sacrifice, you know this, you don't do that, you don't do this. That the more you kind of hang on to those things, understand those principles, then you know God. Many of us can rattle off how we should live. Many of us can rattle off why the word is the word of God, what discipleship actually is. You can rattle off what sin is and what it does to your relationship with God. You could teach someone what biblical repentance is. You could show why baptism is the moment in time we come in contact with the blood of Christ. You can actually teach all those things and not know God. You can have all the knowledge in the world of what the applications of God's word should look like. You could be able to teach up and down what a godly marriage looks like. You could teach up and down what discipline in a Christian household looks like. You could teach all those things. I teach all those things, and yet, I'm convicted here that my diligent study in finding principles and laws and truths may actually, at points in my life, have substituted my quest to know God. In my heart, I'm an engineer. Anybody relate to that? What I mean by that is I want formulas. Give me the plug and chug. Tell me what A is, tell me what B is, tell me what C is. I want to do Pythagorean theorem, I want to do all that kind of stuff, just plug and chug. Those are my favorite math classes. Give me the formula, bang, bang, bang. You make me do some abstract thing like, nope, this doesn't make any sense. What in the world, I feel uncomfortable with how many different directions this can go. There's only one. Give it to me and I'll do that. So that, ma- that mindset, that character, you name it, and some of it's good, some of it can get tricky, but that's what I want. Guys, that's what I want. I want a formula for church growth. I want a formula for marriage. I want a formula for child reading. I want a formula for a great kid's kingdom. I want a formula for this. I want a formula for everything. Give me the principles. Give me what's effective. What's effective over there? What's effective over here? What is, how do they have that? What did they do? Let me do it. Oh, their kids are Christians? They did devotionals every Monday night? I'm doing devotionals every night. Oh, they said this? They didn't say that? I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to. And while it's great, and God makes it very, very clear, imitate those who imitate Christ. I'm not saying, hey, you know, I'm just going to do what I want to do because principles don't go there but a sense of a heart that says, I'm more concerned about principles and applications and these things rather than God. Knowing that God is the chief actor in all of this. That there are no principle, no application, no ability that we possess to do things enough and right enough to make certain things happen. And I confess. I want to know applications and principles so that I do them, I can control the result. If we do church this way, it should grow. If we do this kid's kingdom this way, then it should produce that. If we teach marriage like this, then we should have marriages like God wants us to have. Do This, 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 insert, output. Input, output all day. Give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. And why? I'm afraid of those things not happening. I want to have a great marriage. I want to have, see my kids become disciples of Jesus. I want our church to grow. I want our kids' kingdom to be a place of safety, organization, and a time where our kids grow to know God. That's the output that I hope to see. But in my quest for principles and practicals and execution of all those things, in my heart, I'm saying, I believe we can do all those things and get the outcome, dare I say, without God operating in them. I might praise him, thank him, even worship him for giving me the precepts for life. But I can treat him in my heart as an absentee watchmaker. You made it. You put all the principles out there, you gave us the Bible, there's applications in them, I will find those applications and I will do them. But I don't really expect you to be the chief operator. You gave me the owner's manual, I'll just use the owner's manual. I don't need the owner of whoever created my Toyota Highlander to come and fix my car for me. You gave me the owner's manual, so I will devour it and fix it. Now, that works for cars. You're not going to get the owner of Toyota anyway to come over and fix your car. can't even get the dealership to do it most of the time. And there's a lot of pride of doing it yourself, so figure it out. That's the application. But in the sense of that can creep into my life with God, that that actually can, can actually change the way I view his very word. Do you expect... Do you want? Do you ask? Do you look for God's participation in your life? Currently, Christian publishing is a $7 billion industry. There's a widely popular book entitled Jesus CEO by Laura Beth Jones, Laurie Beth Jones. She studied the New Testament in detail to decipher how Jesus managed to lead so effectively. She reduced Jesus' management style down to three core principles, self-mastery, action, and relationship skills. She called it the Omega management style. And she asserted that they can be applied with equal effectiveness in any area of leadership. So you see leadership in Jesus, give me that book. You're gonna teach me how to be and lead like Jesus, I'll do it. It's not a terrible thing. But she says, and she wrote, that these practices and applications come with two dangerous words, success guaranteed. Gia's CEO advocates that leading like Jesus without actually needing Jesus to be involved. Just do things like he did and you'll get the same results. Doesn't matter where you are and what scenario you place them in, just do this and out pops this result. There are so many times that I've believed, taught, preached, shared, discipled, counseled. Just do these things and you'll get this result. And while in my heart I'm not squeezing out Jesus, what am I, what's being taught and what's being caught? Know these things, do these things, and these things will happen. Principles. Principles are more closely to be relied on than how God is and what is he up to in your life? How is Jesus and the Holy Spirit working? Versus how are you? And what are you doing well enough by the applications to produce these things? I've met tremendous disciples of Jesus whose, parents are, or whose kids are not interested in knowing God. And I've met awful parents whose kids are phenomenal disciples. I mean, I'm talking awful. And I'm thinking, how does that compute? How can it be this tremendous mom, this tremendous dad, this tremendous couple, and their kids want nothing to do with God? And then that, and then this happened? And now I say, it's only God. But in my confusion, you applied all the principles, and your kids aren't interested. Or you applied all the principles to your relationships at work and you're still disrespected. You applied all the principles in your trust of, of romanticism and connection with another, with another, and yet you're still, in your mind, single and suffering. Or you applied all the principles in your marriage, but yet doesn't seem to be connecting. There's no intimacy, there's no connection. There seems to be a problem here. Anyone relate to that? So you can apply the same thing to Christian teaching, marriage, parenting, leadership, small groups, church growth, community involvement, Christian business. It's all get the principles, put them into practice, and you have success guaranteed. And I think we're not naive to think that success is guaranteed, but what I do believe we do is that we believe success is guaranteed until it's not, and then we try to find someone else who's doing something better than us, and we just want to learn what they're doing, and then we want to put that into practice. I am guilty of this. I've been here for 12 years. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to leadership conferences to find out what other churches are doing, been inspired by what God is doing there. And I dissolve it down to a handful of things that they're doing and say, that's what we're doing in the RVC. We're doing small groups. We're doing this. We're doing this. And my poor leadership group is like, Ooh, We're trying to figure out what you just talked about last year, and now we're going to do something different. And then in 12 years of that, I'm wondering why I'm still here. Maybe they are too. This understanding of God informs many of us. I said this a couple. i got to move on here. Many Christians, now we engage the Bible. We do believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. We believe that God works through his word. We know Jesus says that we cannot survive without every word that comes from the mouth of God. We believe that. But many of us may see the Bible as a manual for life. The Bible stands for, in many of Christian circles, and maybe in your, in your mind, it's the basic instruction before leaving earth. Others call it an owner's manual for a human being. But I'm telling you, it's at the root of a very unchristian understanding of God. This basic instruction before living earth is enlightenment thinking, not Holy Spirit thinking. When we see the Bible as a depository of divine principles for life, it fundamentally changes the way we engage God and his word. Rather than a vehicle for knowing God and fostering communion with him, we search the scriptures for applicable principles so that we may control our world and our life. Life's hard. Let me find this scripture. And I apply it and then, okay, it should now make me feel not out of control in my life. But it's based on your search of the application and your practice of the application rather than where is God? Do I know God better? Am I connecting to him? Am I understanding he's in charge? The Trinity is no longer God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. It's God, Jesus, and the Holy Bible. We hold the the Bible as a very high view. We're not down, or I'm not downgrading the importance of the Bible. It is God's word, it is inspired. It's the authority for our life and our faith. And it does contain many useful and glorious applications for all of our life and faith. But why is the Bible with us? It's a revelation of God himself. The Bible is a story to show us who God is. It's a revelation of who he is. It's what Jesus says there in John, John 5. All these scriptures, you devour them, but you can't see God right in front of you. The Bible points to me, he says, and you missed it. Why? Because you're applying the Bible as a divine principle book rather than letting it illuminate who God is. So we can devour the scriptures, know the scriptures better than any denomination you want to say, and yet we can miss God. We can miss what he's up to, how he's moving, how he's working, and it's right in front of our nose. It's a subtle trap that the experts of the law fell into, and so have I. The mastery of scriptures did not result for them in knowing God or recognizing him. And there's been plenty of times that over the years, things God was making clear here in Roanoke, I'm off trying to find other applications to bring here to Roanoke when God was up to something completely different right here. Instead of studying and praying and asking and discerning and getting the group together to pray to figure out what might God be up to, I try to bring another church and a whole other culture, a whole other city and plop it right here in rural Roanoke and expect it to work. This ain't Wendy's. It's not Chick-fil-A. Take every menu in every city and everyone loves it. I love Wendy's. I don't know about you. Why do we do this? Why did I do this? I've been in the ministry for 14 years, and insecurity can run rampant at times. That insecurity can only be quenched at points by effectiveness in the way my, my character and the way my mind can be Sometimes. That you are great because you're effective. You are a wonderful minister because you are effective. You are a wonderful husband because you are effective. You're a wonderful dad because you are effective. If you are not effective, you're what? You're defective. And if you're defective, you should leave, right? So to alleviate that fear, I want to know what works so that I can put that into practice here so that I and we can be effective. But what is effective? What does that really mean, to be effective? How do we judge what effectiveness is? Go to Numbers chapter 20. You guys with me? A time well before the Enlightenment, the temptation to take God out of the picture and take control of For ourselves and find the most effective way of operating was there. Numbers chapter 20 and verse 1 says, the first month the whole Israelite community arrived the desert of Zin and they stayed at Kadesh. Then Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, if we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord, why did you bring the Lord's community into the wilderness? that we and our livestock should die here. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It is no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gathered and gathered the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that, so that they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses, and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I gave them. I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and where He was proved holy among them. You know, Moses here was literally stuck between a rock and a hard place. Bible humor. Come on, give it to me. Anyway. And he needed to solve this problem. Sorry, Bill. Bill hates puns and things like that, so here we go. Uh, He needs to solve this problem. Prior to this moment, Moses and the staff worked a lot of different cool things. He had separated the waters of the Red Sea with the staff. That staff actually dropped and became a snake. right? He turned the water to blood of the Nile. That staff was money, effective. That's an effective staff. God told him with that staff, even even multiple times in the wilderness, raise the staff up, have everybody look at it, and they will not, they'll be bitten by snakes, but they won't die. Whoa! That staff is effective. But now, God's up to a new thing. New problem, new thing. But when Moses got stuck between the rock and a hard place, God said, here's what I'm up to. Here's what I want you to do. But again, it's all about trust. Moses gets rattled, and he's fearful, and he wants to be effective, and he wants to do what's right. What does he do? Goes to what worked. Strikes the rock. Now the crazy part is, what happened? water came out. It was effective. It was an effective way to solve the problem. It was effective. They got water. It happened. The community's like, yay, this is amazing. But God said, you didn't trust me. You took matters into your own hands. You followed a principle, that you thought applied in every situation. You thought it would quell your fears. You thought it would actually meet the needs of the group. You just did what you always did. But I was up to a new thing. Most importantly, I wanted you to trust me, not your applications. And it cost him the promised land. So I think we have an obsession with the word effective. And I think we assume that God does, too. I think we assume that God thinks, like we do, that he's after the most effective thing, the most effective principles of leadership, the most effective small group practices, the most effective church growth tactics. But we see all throughout the scripture that effectiveness is not what God's after. He's after faithfulness. Faithfulness, not effectiveness. Jeremiah, faithful or unfaithful? Faithful. Effective or ineffective? To the world, ineffective. Jonah, faithful or or unfaithful? At first, very unfaithful. Showed up half-heartedly, said one line, one line sermon. Come on, talk about an effective practice, you guys would all be up for it. But God caused them to repent. Not Jonah's effectiveness. God was at work. And I think too often in my heart, and I think in this over God posture, is that I put my faith in the principles and practices over God. That when I read my Bible, I look at that depository of principles of life. And the more I can get and know and do, then I can control my fears. I can control the outcomes. I can predict what's going to happen in my relationship with God, my wife, my kids, the church, and the world. And I can spend so much time and money looking for effective practices on how to do what God wants to do. I remember one minister's retreat really, really well. There was a brother from Indonesia, talk about a different culture, Indonesia, who had spent 14 years developing a community ministry. And what I mean by that is that for us it was a whole different way of how to engage community. A lot of times in our fellowship of churches we have a Bible study series that we engage people with. Here are the the, the first principles, ironic, here are the first principles, here are the, the kind of the building blocks of a faith with God. We can put those studies into practice, someone will know those studies, and they will respond by prayerfully becoming a disciple. And I learn those, and I respect those, and trust those, and they're great because it's the Word of God, but in my mind, in the ministry, I can sit down with anybody, study out these scriptures, And I believe that if I do those things, they'll become Christians. So I train people to know those, and I expect them to know those, and I encourage them to know those, and I push them to go do those, because I believe there's a practice in that that's been shown to be effective. So here we are, let's do those things here and expect the same results. But when they don't, I've heard a number of things. What's up with God? Are these studies broken? Are these scriptures the ones we should be using? They start questioning the application, rightly so. So let's find another one. Let's read another book, let's imply another book, let's do this, always for principles, always for practicals, again, I'm up for learning. But there's times where all that squeezes out God working and our faith is in a system we don't call it that. Our faith is in a system of practices and principles rather than what might God be up to here. Now, if I get in a pinch, can I confess some more? I met a handful of, uh, of guys here over the last couple years. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to study the Bible differently with them. I'm not going to rely on these, these cookie cutter scriptures. And what I mean by that, no offense to anyone, is that this is my heart applying these passages in a way that I expect if I do them right, share them right, have enough information, hit the right things, that it will produce something that God wants. And it's somewhat reliant on my ability to do that to get that result. That's where my heart is. Or was. So you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to sit back. I'm going to talk about bigger ideas of who God is. Just really walk with him. Not get to a point of, Do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this? Okay, building blocks, but just really try my best to stay in touch with what the Holy Spirit's doing, love these people, connect to them, befriend them, for no agenda whatsoever, just to walk and to see God change them. And they did. And they did. And it was the most riveting, refreshing experience of the last 20 years. God did this! I mean, there was one time where I was giving up like, this guy just doesn't get it. How long do I go with this? And we looked at one passage with no agenda, and he's like, dude, why would you tell me this before? Oh my goodness, and it all just like unfolded. And I'm like, wait, what? Dude, I just, wait, what? what'd you say? We just looked at this one passage, and this is where you got from all that? What in the world? And there's nothing that I could say other than, whoa, okay, that's God months later, he walks away from my fellowship, seeking other things. Do you know what my gut reaction was? I don't know if that process worked. And then another guy, same thing, same result. What did I do? Because I feel ineffective. I don't know if what I just did works. Life over God in that posture comes with a heavy price, church. Marginalizing God's place happens, or we eliminate him altogether. I can think sometimes that God's part is finished. He gave us the Bible, gave us the Holy Spirit, he's given us his scriptures, he's given us his word. Now I'm responsible to follow the instructions and implement those principles, and the outcomes are on my shoulders. And when it doesn't work out, the outcomes aren't as expected, and there's nobody I can point the finger to except for me. I didn't study the Bible well with them, good enough. I didn't highlight enough. They walked away for that reason. I probably didn't share that scripture that highlights that. You know what? I just didn't. I just didn't. I just didn't. I, I, I. I. And why this posture fails, because it doesn't deal with the burdens of fear that we carry. It doesn't deal with why life may not be joyful, why my fears aren't alleviated. It saddles us, rather, with a degree of responsibility that we were never intended to carry. Never. I can't say that loud enough, but this gym's loud enough, so I'm not going to yell anymore. It gauges success based on effective outsourcing, or outcomes, rather rather than the faithfulness to God's calling. Let me say that again. Success is based on effective outcomes rather than faithfulness to God's calling. What is effective? Faithfulness is what God wants. You are successful because of your faith in knowing who God is not in what happens because of what you do for God. We conclude that whatever the most effective principle out there is that I'm reading or you're reading is automatically the one that God wants us to employ. And that may not be true. I'm just inviting the church here to contemplate what God might be up to. I am not advocating Throw away all the principles that you can find in God's word. I'm not saying and advocating that we should not have a study series to help people come to faith. I am not advocating a random whatever you want Christianity to be, just do that because you're walking with God. That's not the way of the Spirit either. But I do believe that why I struggle with this one very, very clear aspect of a relationship with God more than anything else, highlights where my heart has been for years. It is ironic that prayer has been a a deficit in my spiritual life for years. And that most pastors and ministers that I talk to, prayer is one of the number one things they do the least of. I read way more than I pray. I buy Amazon books and devour them. We're going through a series through one, for goodness sake, more than prayer. Now, I'm not saying pray more, boop, out comes this. What I am saying is that my relationship with God has primarily been, over the course of many years, a hunt for effective principles, rather than seeking God's face. And I don't know what that means. I don't know what I'm going to find. I'm not sure what the, what's the pot, the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow in that quest. I don't know. But I do know that Paul says to the church in Ephesus, I want you to know how wide and how high and how deep and how long the love of Christ is. He doesn't say, here's these effective principles, do all this. He does say that, but the, bar, the biggest thing is knowing God. And what I am inviting the church into is that I want to create room for the unsearchable movements of God and his Holy Spirit. I want to see what he's up to. I want to leave room for mystery rather than knowing what we should be doing so well and just in an orderly fashion that we can somehow believe we can control the outcome. i got to wrap up. i got to stop. It's getting late. It's 12.05. Anyway, uh, next Sunday we'll look at another one, and uh, prayerfully this just leaves you kind of in the spot of like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I want to do something different. And you relate if you can relate. If you can't, amen. There's some something else there for you. At the end of the day, we want to walk with God. There are beautiful principles and applications even in this lesson, but I want you to be open. To the mystery and the movement of the mystery and the movements of God and His Holy Spirit. Read your Bible this week. Read it, study it, devour it, memorize it. But why? Because there, God is with you. You're communing with God. As you pray, commune. As you read, commune. As you walk, And talk commune and prayerfully God will give us great discernible understanding of what he's up to today
0: we hope you've enjoyed today's sermon be sure to check back every Sunday for new sermons listed right here subscribe to us on YouTube and like us on Facebook to stay in touch with all that God is doing in the Roanoke Valley Church thanks so much